Welcome to the Arrangers Podcast. We're your hosts. My name is Aaron Hedenstrom. And I'm Drew Zaremba. The Arrangers Podcast is a show dedicated to insightful discussion about the art, craft, and business of music arranging and composition. Please subscribe to this podcast for future episodes. This is the Arrangers Podcast, Episode 2. I am Aaron Hedenstrom, and this is my co-host, Drew Zaremba. Hello, everybody. Drew. Hey, Aaron. My man, how are you? Uh, it's good to talk to you, my friend. It's uh, always a pleasure doing this podcast. Let's, let's, uh, let's get into it. Absolutely. Drew, before we get into it, you've been on quite the journey in the last month. Oh, my. Yeah, yeah, yes. Um, this is a crazy, probably the craziest thing I've ever done, musically speaking, in my life. I've been commissioned by a Chinese company slash conservatory to go to China, to Xi'an, Zhuhai, and Beijing to study the operas in those three regions and to gain an understanding of how the musical structure works and the melodies. And they've commissioned me to combine that music with jazz using traditional Chinese opera singers, a few traditional Chinese instruments, and combining that with a jazz quintet, sextet sound. And I'm just back for a few days to lay low and hang out with my family and my wife in particular here, but I'm going back on Monday, and it's been a crazy whirlwind adventure. And uh, now that the research phase of the uh, trip is over, I'm going to begin the writing process. Well, that's that's very cool, Drew, and I'm I'm sure we'll all get to check out the uh, end result once you're finished with the process and. Uh, it kind of leads us very well into the, the topic of the day, or uh, mm-hmm. the topic du jour. Topic du jour. Which really is all about compositional voice, and what is a compositional voice, or what is a musical voice, and how do you define it, and how do you discover your own musical voice, which yeah. is a question that we all have to, to uh, come up against as creative musicians, you know? Absolutely. So I guess the first question then would be, what does it mean to have a musical voice? Hmm. Yeah, defining our terms is going to lead to a more uh, enlightening discussion. I think for me, a a musical voice is a a composer, he or she, when, when, when he or she as a composer, through their compositions, has something identifiable. Um, an element that is uh, to their music, whether it's uh, orchestration, harmonic, melodic, um, or some other aspect of it, which is very recognizable um, across several pieces, um, and usually over a whole body or era of work. You know, something about that piece that is unmistakably that person kind of like a fingerprint. It, it defines them as a some... You, it can be brought... To, it's usually felt in emotional terms first, 
but can be analyzed later and uh, identified as uh, more technical musical terms. What do you think, Aaron? Yeah, I mean, that's, it's, it's a fascinating idea because in some ways you, you could actually point to specific theoretical elements of someone's music as being, you know, something they use a lot and, and therefore is part of their voice. But then you might see the same thing in someone else's music and, right. and it could feel very different. And I think um, there's something about having a compositional voice that is intangible and then there is mm-hmm. something about it that is very tangible that you can actually point to certain things. So, for example, well, we just mentioned George Gershwin, right? We did. Um, some of the elements of his music that I would say are, are very recognizable across his whole body of work would be, you know, his very memorable melodies, mm-hmm. um, his very jazz-inspired harmonies, mm-hmm. and his use of uh, kind of comedy or uh, you could say very animated musical ideas. And all three of those things, while they define a lot of his music, you could say that about someone else and it might mean something different. Exactly. Um, yeah. So so it's it's almost this undefinable thing, but you can also define parts of it. It's It's kind of a weird... Uh, it's a it's a weird thing, but I think a lot of people talk about finding your musical voice, and that's why you know this is such an important question because you could write all the right notes and have it feel very generic and not very personal, right? Right, exactly. It's an elusive concept. <laughs> it is. Uh, would you say that ideally we would all discover our, our musical voice? That's a deep question. And I, is that, these are just my own opinions. I th- some people, you know, have stronger musical voices than others, I think. Some people discover their own um, musical voice, which is individual and unique. And I think it, history tends to remember people who have individual voices which broke with traditions. Mm. But it doesn't, it fails to recognize people who might have had other wonderful musical voices, but weren't doing something modern or new or different. But yep, these are people who have strong musical voices. I think we can tend, particularly in the, you know, in the States, uh, tend to say, oh, well, you need to have a really individual uh, and unique style for it to be a strong musical voice. And I would disagree with that. I think you can have a strong musical voice and be doing, so, you know, um, for example, uh, John Clayton, who I love dearly, uh, is uh, has a similar voice to Thad Jones. You know, he uses similar harmonies and techniques, and yet there's something different about him that everyone recognizes and uh, a little more modern at times, you might say, and he's recognized for that. Equally, there's uh, several other writers um, who can write uh, similarly to Thad Jones, but they don't receive the same recognition um, because they aren't doing something particularly modern. Maybe that's just not what suits them, or they haven't been able to get a platform for it. I'm not sure, but um, there's certainly... Uh, people who have individual voices out there who history will not 
remember in the textbooks and the public fame. Interesting. Um, Yeah, and I I agree. I mean, you you mentioned that it's sort of a, a... you know, a Western idea to have this unique personal voice. And, you know, I'm not sure how other parts of the world would view that, but, but I do, uh, I think that the idea of individualism is very, very common in the United States. And in, in, in part, that's why jazz is so focused on individuality, I think. It's, you know, mm. people talk about jazz as being this very American art form, and if you're going to have something that represents the American landscape, individuality and, I guess, personal authenticity and breaking from the mold and trying to push forward and, and break through boundaries can be something that we can see in a lot of American styles of art. And I, and I do think you're right that, you know, everyone is different. And some people, I feel, are drawn to... This is my style, and this is exactly who I am musically, and I'm not going to break from that. Mm-hmm. And then some people are more along the lines of, you know, whatever the job requires, I'll do it, and I'll, uh, I'll nail it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's every combination in between, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. No doubt. So, so then the question would be then, who are some musicians and and writers that have strong voices. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, classically, uh, in Western classical music, you have the the people who are remembered in history, you know, Bach, Beethoven, Mozart, Chopin, Haydn, uh, Handel, uh, you know, you just run through your list of textbook Western European classical music composers. These are the people who have strong voices um and they were they garnered fame because of their strong voices um and i think for at least a lot of those writers uh in particular their uh their melodies were very memorable i think their um how the relationship between the harmony and the melody and how the melody the whether it's a motivic melody or a mel or a melody that has uh has a more classical form to it. I think that is what defined their uh, musical voices. And often, of course, other times their orchestration choices. But I think the earlier on, particularly, um, when a lot of the instruments used were the same, it was, uh, you didn't have as much color in the orchestra as you do now. Uh, it was their, they used melodies and harmonies to really distinguish themselves. Absolutely. Yeah, for example, Bach, you know, is defined by his use of counterpoint and his perfect voice leading and his perfect interval relationships between all the parts, or or you could argue perfect, I guess. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And his style was so unique, and it was so, uh, from what I know, so groundbreaking for the time that history remembers him as, as such a powerful and uh, innovative composer because... His voice was that strong. Exactly. You can do this in any genre. What are some of your favorite jazz composers with strong voices, Aaron? Um, I mean, Duke Ellington is, is yeah, sort of he's the, the yeah he's the classic the, he's the guy. <laughs> you always feel like it's Duke Ellington, you know. Mm-hmm. And it, again, it's that same thing where you could sometimes um, break down the voicings, and you might 
you might see a lot of the same voicings in other composers' music, and sometimes not. Sometimes he does do things that are very, you know, very dukish. But you just always feel like it's 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 Duke, you know. It's uh, mm-hmm. there's something just about the spirit of the music that it just comes off a certain way, and and it's like he's stretched over different you know different groove styles different tempos different different lengths of compositions uh even adapting mm-hmm. you know like the nutcracker suite for example and he right. adapts this this pre-written material from uh Tchaikovsky and then he manages to completely make it feel like yeah that's Duke Ellington <laughs> you know right exactly it's, I mean, it's it's so hard to put a finger on why, but it's just so clear when you listen to Duke Ellington's music, this guy has a real voice. Yeah, exactly. And uh, it goes, uh, you can't, you can hardly mention Duke without also mentioning uh, Billy Strayhorn, of course, as well. Absolutely. Of course, you can list all the other, um, some of the other great, Big band arrangers, like uh already mentioned him before, Thad Jones, of course. Um, a very, and again, just like you were saying about Duke, a very strong personal style, even though many people use his voicings and, uh, you know, forms and, and ideas. It's, it's, there's, it's unmistakably Thad when you hear it. Absolutely. Um, um, and you can say the same about Sammy Nestico and, Bob Brookmeyer and uh, Maria Schneider and John Hollenbeck and uh, Gil Evans. Um, Gil Evans, oh my goodness, and yeah. uh, uh, Jerry Mulligan. Maybe mm-hmm. more as a maybe more as a player than a writer. Um, in in some cases, Vince Mendoza. Yep. Billy Byers. Nelson Riddle. Nelson Riddle. Yeah, I was about to say Nelson Riddle. Oh, there's so many. Yeah. You can really put it into other styles, too. Like, when I think about uh, an example of a songwriter that has a very personal, unique style would be Bob Dylan. You know? Right. His lyrical style is so, so unique to him. And Mm -hmm. his his ability to convey this poetic message or tell a story or kind of demonstrate just a feeling about the way that... uh, society is feeling like you know the times there are changing or or demonstrate mm-hmm. sort of these philosophical concepts in a way that's so poetic and so musical i that to me is bob dylan's is forte right right part of that is his singing voice is so unique to him you can't really copy that you know mhm but part of it is the way that he writes the songs and and there's still classics today or um like Stevie Wonder. I mean, oh my gosh. Yeah, absolutely. You know, or Carol King. I mean, there's all these examples across genres of people who have these distinct styles and it it's like you can you can do your best impression of them as a writer, but you just can't you can't get 100% of what they bring to the table. The Beatles, Pink Floyd, The Who, all these great rock bands. Uh, Sting. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. One thing that we've been talking about, Drew, is, you know, when it comes to developing your own personal musical style, 
And if you read history books and if you follow biographies of some of these great artists, it does take a long time. And sometimes it can take minutes or days to develop (laughs) your own personal style. Minutes or days. I think you might have the wrong uh, time frame. I think you mean years or decades, Aaron. Oh, shoot. Yes, you're right. Slightly different. Years or decades. Absolutely. Yeah. We live in an age where everything feels like it needs to be instant. Mm. And I think it's important that we remember that it takes time to uh, develop our artistic sensibilities. That it does. Definitely. So, Drew, is there any uh, other examples of some some composers, arrangers, uh, just general musicians that stick out to you as particularly having a strong voice? I think the one that most people, musicians or not, would would immediately identify as a strong composer is John Williams. Sure. Um, I think uh, he has one of the strongest voices, um, and he has a massive platform, of course, too. But um, there was a recent segment I was watching on YouTube or somewhere that talked about the uh, the immediate recognizability of a Star Wars, Indiana Jones, or other John Williams theme, and uh, the inability to sing any theme from any recent Marvel movie or... Uh, other blockbuster hit that is more of an action adventure sequence, Um, you know, and I, and part of that, uh, they, they attribute a lot of it to the lack of freedom that film composers have because directors get too tied to the temp track. Uh. Um, And so this, we can talk about this whole topic on another episode, maybe sometime, but sure. Um, Nevertheless, uh, John Williams remains one of the most uh, recognizable and one of the strongest compositional voices in in our time. Very true. And I would also throw in, for a modern film composer, Mm -hmm. the the first name that comes up when you talk about 21st century film scoring, I think Hans Zimmer would be the one that that people think of. And, And it's not necessarily melodically oriented as much as it is the sound of his scores and the maybe it's just the approach that he takes to scoring which is not that of a traditional orchestrator but it's much more of an experimentation process and right you know yeah recording a bunch of sounds and then uh using software and creative recording techniques to you know sample them in different ways and stretch them and morph them and uh, layer them and, and sort of more of a contemporary concept of, of what a score could be. And, you know, you think about, about Inception or uh, I was just listening to the Gladiator soundtrack the other day, and he does have a very distinct sound, which, again, I, I don't know that I could necessarily sing you a melody, but it's very much kind of a minimalist concept you know, drawing from um, Steve Reich and, you know, Terry Riley and uh, these minimalist composers and, and kind of taking them and putting them into a film context. And then obviously mixing in rock grooves and, um, mm-hmm. 
you know, electronic sounds and synthesizers. And it's a very, it's a very recognizable sound. I think that he would be someone that has a unique voice to me as well. Yeah, a, a, a unique and very strong musical voice, no doubt. So with all these composers, I think you end up coming across this idea of who influenced them and how does that come into their music. And I think one of the big challenges about writing music is using your influences as inspiration, but not outright copying them in a way that's, let's just call it plagiarism. Right, right. Well, I, and I think it also depends on where you are in, the, in, you, in life. <laughs> if you are a student or an emerging writer, I think Stravinsky, of course, a lot of people know the Stravinsky quote, the best artists don't borrow, they steal, right? Mm -hmm. So um, I think when you're starting out, I think it's a good idea to be directly inspired from specific pieces and maybe even borrow a voicing or a melodic material, like some sort of motif that really inspires you and, and use that to connect your work. By all means, not the whole piece or anything, but using bits and pieces of, of other composers' work that you are, you've heard so strongly in your head because you've listened to it so many times. I think that's a really a, a good thing to do. But as you develop and mature as a, as a composer, you don't want to copy people's work. That would, be, <laughs> that would be like saying, oh, I wrote this thing. It's my own original idea when, when someone else really wrote it first. And when you're, I've actually heard compositions like this before, and it's a very mm. awkward thing because you're there listening to the piece and you're like, I know exactly which piece you based this off of. Yep, you did this thing exactly right here. Yep, you did this turn in the form right here. And uh, I would, I, I'm, I've certainly uh, been very highly inspired by certain pieces and, and people even pointed out, hey, you were inspired by this when you use this device. And I don't take it, uh, I take it as a compliment because, oh, yes, absolutely. This is one of my favorite things. But uh, if, if someone says that about the whole piece, I think you're in trouble. If you, for a, maybe a moment, uh, I think it's okay. But for the whole piece, you start to run into issues. Yeah, that's, that's true. And I think, like we said before, it's impossible to reinvent music 100% from the ground up. I mean, you're not just going to be entirely, completely 100% original because... You know, we, we don't live in a vacuum. You know, we're living in a society. Uh, mm -mm. You know, we are limited to the resources that we have. But I think one of the biggest compliments that an artist can receive is if four different people came up to them and they each listed different comparisons of different musicians. If mm. If one person comes up to me and says... Man, that piece really sounded like you you were listening to some Bob Brookmeyer and then another person comes up and says, "Man, I was really hearing some John Williams in that or just you name whatever composer." <laughs> to me, to have two different completely different people that it reminds them of is a huge compliment because it means that your writing is not just a direct copy of any one person. Mm. I would be very concerned if someone was like, 
always if the same person was always bringing up the same comparison you know or different people were bringing up the same comparison right that's what i mean yeah if if everyone always <laughs> if everyone always compared my music to the same exact person then i would be st- a little more skeptical but i i would rather have a bunch of people say that my music reminded me of someone different right definitely it's a it's a difficult it's a difficult thing because you inevitably do tend to write like the people you've in, been influenced by, which is why I think it's also important to, in your musical diet, to consume a wide variety of styles. You don't want to just, you know, listen to one composer all the time, even if you really, really, really dig it. You as a composer, your music will benefit from a wide variety of influences, not just a uh, one or two uh, bands or composers. Absolutely. And then a lot of times external factors can influence how your voice develops, like um, who's going to perform your piece and what instruments do you have at, at right. your disposal? Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's another huge thing. What's readily available for you to get performed? Yeah, and, and do you have a specific performer in mind? Like, um, Drew, we were talking before this, this uh, show about Gil Evans writing for Miles Davis and how right. how Miles Davis's individual sound shaped the approach that Gil had to use when writing for him. Without a doubt. Gil already was a very sensitive arranger, so he was already well-equipped to write for Miles, but the fact that he was writing for him even, even modified the music further. You know, you can tell because the arrangements that he did for Miles... His compositional voice is so strong, you can hear it across many of his albums, but the approach that he takes between, for example, Cannonball Adderley on Old Bottle New Wine yep. is quite different from the some of the arrangements that he does for uh, Miles Ahead and Sketches of Spain, et cetera, et cetera. Yes, definitely. Definitely, definitely, definitely. If you choose, if you are a composer in music which is performed by living people, and what I mean by that is some a lot of composers are purely electronic musicians now, mm-hmm. so they uh, they don't have to run into this issue. But when running into performers, who you choose to play your music makes a big difference, not just the solo instrument position, but um, even the inner parts or someone, the person who always comes to my mind for a band is a is a drummer who do you choose to play drums mm-hmm. this is going to have a huge influence on your music you you hire a rock drummer he's going to have a completely different set of perspectives and priorities than a jazz drummer would than a class than a latin percussionist would than a screamo uh, drummer <laughs> you know i don't you know like, yeah <laughs> <laughs> there's going to be a different approach um and so just a little uh, bit just a little bit and that that's the that's the biggest examples the widest sure. margin of of difference even within jazz or within any genre i'll speak to jazz since i know it the best getting someone who plays slightly more modern versus someone who plays some uh, in a more blue note style versus someone who plays more in a dixieland style these will have major impacts on the feel and interpretation of the music because the drums is so critical to the internal groove and interpretation of the piece yeah you know i've I've had instances where i've hired a a group to play a gig and 
uh, like a small a small group jazz gig, and I'll pick three rhythm section players that are all really good, and I'll think to myself, this is going to be awesome. They're all so good good at at playing their instrument. And then when we get to the rehearsal and we get to the gig, even though they're all outstanding musicians, their style doesn't necessarily mesh with each other that well or um, or depending on the compositions that I'm, I'm having them play, it may, it may not uh, be the right fit for the music. So sometimes it's not even a matter of how good the player is. It's just what's their sensibility, what's their skill set, and what's their approach to playing the music. Yeah, no doubt. And so as much as uh, we don't really think about it that much, the, an important part of your compositional voice is your performers. Um, because that's ultimately how the music will be perceived and analyzed and critically evaluated. So Drew, as you have developed as a uh, writer and as you have learned from from composers of the past and taken lessons and learned through experience, what would you say you have learned about developing your own personal voice? Wow. Um, well, you, you, you summed it up, really. I think um, the best way to develop your personal voice is, is listening to your favorite composers um, and studying the scores so you understand how those sounds are made, getting a strong private lesson instructor so you, that person who has more experience than you do can bounce idea you can bounce ideas off of them and they can help you understand where you're at musically. And um, if you are in the business of composing and arranging, which hopefully you are if you're listening to this podcast, <laughs> or maybe you're interested in learning, or your style will begin to evolve as you, as you write music. I know that's been the case for me. I love Stan Kenton's music and the One O'Clock Lab Band music, and so a lot of the f- first pieces that I wrote for Big Band in particular sounded like this. Um, and as my diet uh, changed and grew and listened to more Thad Jones and more uh, swing styles, uh, uh, Sammy Nesico and uh, Jerry Mulligan and, you know, uh, uh, other various composers, uh, Billy Byers, uh, Ernie Wilkins, that began to creep into the sound. And so uh, my ta- as my tastes and my what I enjoy listening to evolves and changes, so does my style. And so I'm still 25, about to be 26, and my my personal style is is changing all the time. And so I think right now it sits somewhere between, you know, straight ahead and slightly modern. <laughs> Maybe uh, I really dig the harmony and melodies of, of the 60s and the 50s Blue Note era. Mm. And um, I think that's where my my style is is based in and comes out of um but um that and then that but that's where i am right now and i i hope it'll be different in uh, a couple years from now um always changing and, and evolving how about you aaron what what uh how, how do you feel about your style from my perspective it's always been about the music that i like to listen to and how that filters through my own compositional process. What music have I always gravitated towards? And I've always gravitated towards music with uh, memorable melody and 
intriguing harmony and music that somehow is seeking to push the boundaries in some way, shape, or form, but not necessarily in every way. So, you know, when I was in middle school, my listening was a lot of George Gershwin, mm. uh, a lot of classical compilations and a lot of uh, Charlie Parker and Miles Davis and Sonny Rollins and John Coltrane and um, Thelonious Monk, you know. And so those influences alone are are very strong for me. And then I was also always interested in songwriters and pop songs and R&B music and, and music with a strong groove. So mm-hmm. when you piece together all these different styles of music and these different artists that I've I've enjoyed listening to, um, I think those filter themselves through my music, you know. And there's certain um, there's certain elements. Even if I'm writing in like a modern jazz context, I think if you were to know that I li- really enjoy uh, pop music with simple chords and simple melodies, you might be able to hear some of that filtered through. And if you knew that I really like listening to uh, hip hop and R&B, then you would probably hear some of that, you know, feeling or that uh, groove in the music too, depending on which piece you're listening to. But for me, it's sort of this process of filtering the music that you like into your own compositions. And more and more, as I kind of develop as a musician, I start thinking about writing the music that I would want to listen to. Right. In some ways, I think you could probably say that if you're writing music that's filtered through your own personal uh, listening choices and, and the music that you like, you know, you're probably going to be rejecting certain other parts of the music that you don't necessarily care for as much. If there's a certain type of harmony that you just don't care for, you probably aren't going to gravitate towards those sounds in your writing. And so I think in some ways it's a natural process, and in some ways it's a very intentional process. And if I might say this on the radio, uh, I would say that I think, I, uh, not just speaking as a friend, but you know, I've always admired your personal style, Aaron. I think it's always been something very strong, and you can hear it on your pieces. Um, I think it's something innate within you, and it, it, it's... Uh, there's always a story being told in your music, um, and I think it's a very it's a strong musical style that uh, that people can recognize easily, and I think that's a that's a that's a strength, and anyone who listens to your music can can tell. Well, thank you, Drew. Oh yeah, buddy, of course. Well, Drew, you know, and and and, and I don't just say this to return the compliment, but your music also, I think, has a very strong personality and, and style to it. And and I think this is something we can learn from. Your personality is very outgoing and exuberant and joyful, and I think that comes through in your music. But you also have a very thoughtful and contemplative side to you. And I think the balance of those two things brings your music to a, a place where you have these contrasting emotions, and it's very mature because there's a whole palette of emotions that, and I think that just comes from your personality as much as it comes from, you know, your musical influences. You're very kind, Aaron. And, and it, you actually, you ha- helped me remember what I was going to say. I think that the, one of the keys to writing with a compositional voice is to write from your heart. And mm. that sounds cheesy and 90s, you know, advice or something. But <laughs> I, I think it's actually true 
because a lot of, particularly in academia, we try to write to impress, or mm -hmm. we try to write to be popular, or we write to、um, look cool or something. And、sure. the reality, you know, and there's time. There's a time and place to experiment and really, you know, try something that you're not sure if you like it or not, or whether you it's from your heart or whether it's not. But there's time for that in 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 your pieces. But in general, the pieces that I think are the most successful from people is the ones that are the most sincere. The ones that. And you were you reminded it of me when you said the, the when you're talking about the pop songs and such, you know, like that part is a those those songwriters and and、um, melodies are part of your musical DNA. And to deny that it brings joy to your heart would be to deny part of your own musical enjoyment. And so to have that come through in your music is a positive, not a negative. Definitely. And so writing music that you like. Writing something that you like to listen to, something that comes from your heart that you、um, would want to show someone else, I think that is the one of the first steps in establishing your musical style. And as、uh, as my mentor John Clayton says all the time, you know, once you figure out what that is, then that's half the battle. The other half is figuring out how to say it clearly. You know,、mm. the sin sincerity and clarity. You know, figuring out what you want to say, say it from your heart, and then we can work on how to say it in the with the articulation, twang, or uh, art, uh, whatever style you want to say it in. That's、uh, that's a key, in my opinion, to finding a strong musical voice. Drew, that is a beautiful, a beautiful note to wrap things up on. Oh, thanks, buddy. Thank you. All right, it's time for quick concepts. Quick concepts. The whole idea behind quick concepts is that Drew and I will quiz each other on musical terms that relate to composition and arranging, and then give each other twenty seconds to answer them. Need some background music here. Yeah. The final countdown. Yeah.、Uh, I'll probably just、anyway. leave that in. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> that's that's better than anything I could come up with. Yeah. <laughs> It's you singing that. That's awesome. So I'm going to give you a musical term, and you have 20 seconds to give me an explanation or definition of what that is. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. The term is chord extensions. Chord extensions. A chord is a three-note、uh, structure,、uh, usually, and a chord extension is when you're using notes that go beyond those three notes. So often on a triad, you might have a,、uh, or as a seventh chord, you'll have. Oh my gosh, that was twenty seconds. It goes fast, doesn't it? Oh, I need to do that again. Let me、right. do that again. All right, let's do it again. <laughs> <laughs> let's do it again. Let's、All、do、right. it again. All right, twenty seconds on the Here clock. Here we go. One, two, three, start. Okay, chord extensions 
um, are upper, often otherwise called upper extensions. On a seventh chord, might include the ninths, the elevenths, the thirteenths. They are used by arrangers to make uh, more colorful harmonies within a harmony or harmonic structure. All right, you got there it. we go. I'm in. There we Ding. go. The first one you can give me a big uh, for. That was lame. <laughs> well, you know, 20 seconds is a lot shorter than I was anticipating. No kidding, man. Me, I had no idea 20 seconds was that short. I got one for you. All right. Okay. What is reharmonization? Go. Reharmonization is the process where you take the regular harmony from a melody and then you completely replace it with a harmony that also fits over the melody, but is completely alternate. Wow, that was 13 seconds, man. Woo! You, you, you prepared. You, I, you, you were ready. I don't know how thorough of a definition that was. It was very thorough. I thought it was perfect. Where's your bongo <laughs> feet clip? <laughs> I think great. you just gave it to me. There you go. <laughs> give me give me another one, coach. Your second term will start as soon as I say it. The term is diatonic versus chromatic planing. Go. Okay, planing is when you take a structure and move it through uh, up and down. So diatonic planing would be moving it up and down through a scale, a major scale or a minor scale, and chromatic planing would be literally moving everyone, all the notes up in half steps or uh, up and up and... Oh, shoot! Up in half steps or down in half steps. That was pretty I, close. I, I, I was really close. Yeah, that I'm, was pretty uh, close. I'm, uh, I use a lot more words than necessary. That's what I've figured out <laughs> well um here i got one for you Ready? all right all right so this is a little more uh it's it's a concept more than it is a term but talk about the importance of using english in a drummer chart go so when you're writing drum parts, there's only a limited amount of information you can give them using notes because they have such a complex instrument. So you use English words, or if you're in a different language, you use that, to describe style points and influences that they might refer to to get the right style. Dang, that was like 19 and a half. That was perfect. Woo, sheesh. Wow. Wow. Well, next time I will have to brush up on my terms so I can compete. Although I, our listeners should know, uh, I, I really can't compete. You have a, of course, a, a doctorate in composition and oh. arranging, and I have a lowly master's degree. So, uh, yeah, whatever that means. So, uh, Aaron is uh, is he's studied up, y'all. Well, you know, I had to do these oral exams and I had to do these written exams where I had to do all this summary and, and in addition to the paper I had to write. So that that uh, whole summarizing and boiling down terms into little explanations is something that I've uh, kind of gotten used to. Well, there you go. We have our winner for this round. Not that there is a winner, that it needs to be a winner, but there is a winner this time. And it is clearly Aaron. <laughs> all right. Yeah, baby.
You, you, you won at your own game. Wait a second. <laughs> I think I cheated. No, hardly. Hardly the case. Well, cool. This has been another fun episode, Aaron. Drew, this has been fun. No Doritos sponsorship yet. Working on it. Working Maybe on we it. We can get Fritos. Fritos might uh, bite first. All right. No pun intended. Um, let's let's so, go for it. Yeah, I think so. You know, unless unless there's something someone else out there. I've I've always been a big fan of bugles. Those are so bad. For me. Really? I love bugle. I gotta oh say, gosh. man, I'm not a bugle guy. Oh, I mean, they're fun to put on your fingers and pretend you have claws, but uh, right. But the fun ends there for me. Oh no, it's it's. I, I can't buy them because I'll eat them all at once. Oof! I I, I don't buy. Them. They're they're really. They, then you feel really bad. Anyways, so maybe we shouldn't go for bugles. <laughs> <laughs> Long story short. Well, this has been another episode of the Arrangers Podcast. Once again, please make sure to subscribe so that you can keep track of the next episode. And we are signing out. Thanks for listening. Tune in next time.